0: welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad you're spending time with me today because I've got a special guest on our studio line, excited to bring her on. Alicia Childers is my guest. She is a amazing musician and talented author and blogger and and uh, all-around great communicator of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Alicia, welcome.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, it's always uh, always nice to, to meet somebody new. I, I know you I've got quite a career in music, and I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about that, and then we'll move into other things.
1: Yeah, well, I've kind of been in music my whole life. Um, it's, the realm I'm in now, which is more ap- apologetics and uh, philosophy and things like that, that was something I never envisioned for myself. I was mm-hmm. actually a part of the uh, contemporary Christian music group Zoe Girl for many years, before uh, kind of sh- switching gears <laughs> and doing more of what I'm doing today.
0: And you uh, have a great passion for helping people understand the truth, and I love that because that's what I love doing on my show as well. And there are a lot of people out now presenting themselves as followers of Jesus, and they're they're perverting the gospel. And we need to be aware of those kinds of authors and speakers and teachers and preachers.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that's it's a major theme that we see all throughout the New Testament is that you know, even Jesus predicted there was going to be wolves come into the church, and these wolves would be bringing in um, ideas that actually had them marked in Jesus' view as false prophets. And so virtually every book of the New Testament warns us against false teaching, and it's something that the Bible takes very seriously, so I think we should too.
0: Well, I agree, and when we are um, talking to people and they're finding Something that their itching ears want to hear, we always have to, as uh followers, be ready to provide an answer and provide the truth because people are hearing a lot of things that are not biblical mhm so yeah let 's dig into some of that because you 've done such a wonderful job of uh of telling us what it is that we should be watching for, what some of these pro- more progressive uh pastors and teachers are saying, and what we what our ears should be uh ready to to uh, hear and, and uh, defend?
1: Yeah, well, I uh, wrote a book about the movement of progressive Christianity because I think it's a movement that's coming into the church that is really, really—it's um, you know, a lot of people think progressive Christians are just a group of people who are maybe changing their minds on some political issues, or maybe they're just trying to embrace more grace in their lives or something like that. But what I try to communicate in the book is that, Progressive Christianity is a movement that's actually giving us a completely different gospel. And, and so it's, it's a different God, it's a different Jesus and essentially even just the gospel message of what it means to be saved, what it means to be with God, all of that is completely changed in progressive Christianity. And the reason that I was really interested to talk about that movement was because as you mentioned before, I was in music. None of this is even really on my radar, but after Zoe girl came off the road, um, after about seven eight years of touring, uh, my husband and I were attending a church here in the heart of Middle Tennessee, where we live and We really loved this church. we just found a great sense of community there. We both loved the pastor 's intellectual approach to sermons and it really, it wasn 't until about eight months after we started attending this church that the pastor invited me to be a part of a smaller study and discussion group and What I didn't know at the time was that this pastor was already had been through a process called deconstruction, that we're seeing a lot of that now, what's being referred to as faith deconstruction. He'd already been through it, and his goal was to get people in his church to be deconstruction movement so that he could convert them to progressive Christianity. And he was really good at it. And so virtually everybody that I was in class with ended up deconstructing out of historic Christianity and embracing a more progressive type of Christianity. And what that looks like is, you know, I mentioned before, minor issues, secondary issues that we might all say we can agree to disagree about. But it's a fundamental shift in the way that the Bible is viewed and the cross and the gospel So with progressive Christianity, the Bible is seen more as uh, like an ancient spiritual travel journal that reflects what people believed about God in the times and places that they lived in. But they weren't speaking authoritatively for God. And so in progressive Christianity, the idea of biblical authority or uh, certainly inerrancy, all of that is put to the side. And then this idea of personal conscience sort of takes the, its place as far as what is the authority. And then moving through the gospel, even into the atonement in progressive Christianity, often the atonement is viewed as uh, cosmic child abuse. The idea that God, the father would require the blood sacrifice of his only son in the mind of the progressive, this implicates the moral character of God. And so there's really no sense in which, in progressive Christianity, you even need to be saved because they don't believe that your sins separate you from God in the first place. And so the gospel, according to progressive Christianity, essentially would just be, uh, you know, you need to just find it in yourself to realize that you've never been separated from God, that you're already accepted by God, you're already inherently united with God, and you just need to realize it. So it, it really does present a completely different gospel message on what humans are, what's wrong with humans, how does that get fixed, and really who God is and what His plan is in bringing uh, apart that redemption.
0: Mm, so good. Elisa Childers is my uh, guest, and her book that she's written is called Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. And Elisa, I always go back to what I, what I hear uh, Paul say in his letter to the Galatians in the first chapter, that I'm... I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all.
1: hmm Yeah, that's really true. And in uh, progressive Christianity, uh, that's really what it comes down to, is this just radically different view of the gospel. And so, in, you know, historically speaking, Christians have believed that God created humans and called us good, and we are all stamped with the image of God, but we've all distorted that image in one way or another with uh, sin, and so uh, we need to be redeemed because God is holy, which means that his, uh, that he can have no unity with sin, and so we have this separation inherently between us and God, and so that's where the great rescue plan comes in. Jesus living a perfectly sinless life and taking our sins upon himself. Uh, But again, this is just rejected in the progressive view, whereas they, they kind of view creation more like something that God created the universe. But when he did that, he incarnated himself into physical matter. In Many progressive circles, this is referred to as the universe being the body of God. And so if, they, if there's this divine essence in everything, then we just need to look inside ourselves to find it and realize that we're not separated from God, we're not fallen. And I think another hallmark of progressive Christianity, uh, just as it kind of runs along the narrative arc of the gospel, is that there's a sense in which they deny that there's a place of punishment called hell they might affirm different things about what heaven is going to be like or what the afterlife will, afterlife will be like in a positive sense. But the one thing that they're very united on is this idea that God would never send anyone to a place called hell. So with that out of the way, it doesn't really matter if people are Christians or if they're not Christians. It's very pluralistic in that sense that, you know, you can you can be a Buddhist and still be in the community of progressive Christianity because they believe that all religions – are really kind of coming from the same source and going back to the same source. So it it really takes on a very universalistic and pluralistic tone uh, when you really dig down to the bottom of it.
0: So in other words, every religion has an equal setting or place at the table, and if you are adhering to the tenets of that particular religion, chances are really good you'll get to your happy place in heaven.
1: Right. And I think they would even go further as to say you don't even have to have one. In fact, that's one of the hallmarks of progressive Christianity is that there are uh, online progressive churches that are that have atheists. In fact, there's a church here in Nashville, a progressive church that just hired a secular humanist to come on staff. So because it's so all inclusive, like you mentioned, everybody having a seat at the table, that's language you'll hear quite often in progressive Christianity because of that. You don't have to necessarily find some kind of religion, to. although they certainly wouldn't oppose anybody who said, oh, I've found God through Hinduism or through Buddhism or New Age or whatever it might be. But you don't even have to claim that. You are already a part of God's world, a part of his kingdom. You have a seat at the table. There's nothing you need to do or acknowledge. You don't need to put faith in Jesus. But there's a sense in which just everything is going to be fine. Everybody will be... Uh, included in this you know plan of the divine in fact that's that's an interesting thing as well in progressive christianity is often the word god or something that might be said about um you know the the God having a name or something like this gets sort of uh replaced with a more neutral term like the divine or uh, mm-hmm. something along along those lines yeah
0: great cosmic spirit mhm come yeah, up with a lot of crazy like stuff, yeah. Yeah. And they'll also I would imagine use their experiences to interpret the Bible instead of using the Bible to interpret their experiences.
1: Yeah, that's a great that's a great observation. Um as I mentioned before, historically Christians have believed that the Bible is like that's the boss, right? The Bible is our authority for what's true. It's our it's God's revealed word. It's 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 his breathed-out word to us that reveals everything we need to know about him and what we need to know about the world and how to be in the world and what kind of a thing we are and all of these things. But in progressive Christianity, that really gets moved onto the self. And so then the Bible starts to get interpreted through the lens of self. And I also think that it's because there's such a link with postmodernism. And um, this is where I think the deconstruction piece comes in as well, because postmodernism is really marked by a relativism, which would say what's true for you is true for me. And then it's also marked by hyper skepticism, which isn't really interested in the truth, but in more like, I'm just going to debunk whatever anybody says, because there's this inherent suspicion when somebody starts claiming that something is true. And the reason that, that suspicion is there is because they don't really believe that objective truth exists. And if it does, certainly nobody could know it. So if you mm. claim to know it, you're viewed as arrogant or even worse, you're, you're viewed as um, trying to control the narrative that you are somehow making a bid for power by trying to claim that something is true so it 's very hard to have conversations because oftentimes progressive christians aren 't really looking to interact with the words you 're saying but they 're really more trying to find uh, the motive behind what you 're saying what what are you trying to control by saying this? what sort of institution are you trying to prop up what What are you trying to bid for power like what what mm-hmm. kind of power are you looking for and so it's very difficult even to communicate
0: sometimes. Mhm. Alicia Childers is my guest. Her book is Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. We're going to take a little break and be right back in just a minute. I'd have Lisa Childers as my guest. She's written a book called Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. Lisa, it seems that emotions are a pretty important element in this progressive Christianity.
1: There are some hallmarks uh, to look for. Mm-hmm. To maybe see the signs in a Bible study you're reading, or maybe even in the church you're attending, and that's a big one. It's like the power of personal conscience. I've even seen progressive churches remove belief statements from their websites and replace them with new ones that say, look, we believe the authority is just this inherent God-given conscience that each person has inside of them. And so when it comes to what might be morally good or true or morally bad or false, you're going to depend on this internal moral compass that you have to decide those things rather than kind of as we hinted at in the last segment, going to the Bible for that, or even looking out into objective reality and trying to describe and explain reality. It's really more about what's going on in your own heart, which can make it kind of difficult at times, I think, to interact with maybe friends of ours who might be heading into this progressive Christianity, because very often when it comes to deconstruction and progressive Christianity, there's a sense in which there's a this sort of knee-jerk reaction to want to disconnect from your church community. In fact, mm-hmm. with with deconstruction, we see that happening largely online, where people are deconstructing together in these online communities, um, and they have no interest in, uh, in you know, in staying connected with a local church or maybe asking their questions or engaging on that level in the local church. This is something that's largely done apart from that, and that's led by this. Sense of inner conscience and what beliefs do I think are oppressive? Mm. What beliefs do I think are harmful? Or which ones do I think are making me feel healthy and whole? And so, for those of us who know that human beings are fallen and we're sinful and we know that our moral compasses are kind of broken, you know, this can be a dangerous endeavor. And so, um, fundamentally, though, that's just that's difference in the worldview. Is that I think one group is saying, look, we know we're sinners. We can't figure this out on our own. Whereas the other one is saying, no, you're, you're perfect just as you are. Mm-hmm. You have this inherent core of goodness in you. You just need to tap into. And I, and I think it makes it very hard to engage with each other sometimes because of those differences.
0: What would be the goal of those churches? Wouldn't be salvation, probably wouldn't be disciple, disciple building. I don't know. What would be the purpose, just to gather in community and tell each other we're doing great?
1: Well, I think that's a good question. I think what, what becomes the driving force is is more of a emphasis on social justice. Mm-hmm. So in progressive churches, you're not going to hear the gospel message of you're a sinner, you need to be saved, you need to put faith in Jesus and be born again and sanctified and all that stuff. You're not going to hear that. Instead, though, uh, like you said, there, there has to be a cause, right? They have to be coming together for a particular purpose. Mm-hmm. And so what what is found there? is a real emphasis on not so much what's going on in your personal life or in your own beliefs, but more of this community sense of what what causes are you advocating for? What protests are you marching in? What uh, systems of oppression are you actively trying to dismantle? And that becomes the focus. And, you know, I've written before that I think it's good for Christians to do good works in the world. I think that we learned from James that a real, a real Christian, the faith that's in you will be evidenced by good works in the world. Mm-hmm. But in progressive Christianity, this is sort of flipped on its head where it's the works that take precedent over the gospel of grace. And that makes it uh, kind of bottom out into this really strong works-based gospel. And it's I think, I mean, when I look at it from the outside, I just think it, it actually puts people into a lot of bondage because if you're not doing all the right things and saying the right things and um, using the right hashtags and all of this stuff, it, it can be a very isolating experience because you won't be included. And um, But that's kind of how all Gospels of works work, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's not a gospel of grace. There's no real mechanism for atonement in that in that paradigm.
0: It seems that in that environment, well, you, say you you have nobody that can essentially contradict your will, because you've got this God yeah. consciousness inside of you, so therefore you're always able to make the right choice and to know what to do and to sort of be the authority in your life, because that well, God that, spirit yeah. is in you.
1: That's interesting, though, because it only goes so far, as I think we've all experienced. As long as you agree with their ideology, that will be the case. But as we've seen, the whole tolerance thing can be very intolerant. If you happen to be, say, a conservative Christian, or you might be Um, you know, saying, hey, actually, God cares what we do with our bodies. And I think the Bible has a lot to say about sexuality. Hmm. You start talking like that, and then all of a sudden that tolerance and that sense of personal conscience is like, well, no, you can't say that kind of thing. That's wrong. That makes you kind of on the outside. So it ends up being, uh, in the name of tolerance, it ends up being extremely intolerant.
0: That's such a good point. I've always understood faith to be kind of a decision-making process based on the Word of God without a lot of concern about my feelings.
1: Right. Well, that's the thing, because really, when you look at the promises Jesus made, he said things all the time, like, you know, in the world, you're going to have trouble. Mm-hmm. People, are going, people are going to hate you. They hated me. Um, and But of course, his promise was to be with us till the end of the age. His promise was that he has overcome the world. So we had this greater reality to look into and hope for. But really, Christianity is not going to feel great every day. There, there are going to be days when we wake up and go, man, this is not working for me. This is, In fact, Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and follow me. In other words, we have to live a life of sacrifice, of putting others first, of uh, putting God first and saying, look, whatever comes, we're going to, we're prepared to suffer. We're prepared to be persecuted. And if we only follow our hearts, our hearts are going to say, Oh no, we don't want to, we don't want to do that. We don't want to be persecuted and, and be in places of discomfort, but that is just, it's such a different way Christianity works than the type of a gospel that would say, you know, follow your personal conscience because your personal conscience is probably going to seek your own comfort first.
0: Yeah. Right. And then, Lisa, I'd love for you to talk about some of the social and cultural issues that make progressive churches more attractive.
1: Right. Well, um, so I think the big one would be sexuality. Of course, Mm -hmm. we're living in a culture that—you know, when I was in high school— if I, believe, you know, if I were to tell somebody that I believe that in biblical sexuality, they might think I'm a little old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. They, might have, they might have thought, oh, she's a goody two-shoes or something. But kids growing up today who hold to a biblical sexual ethic are being told, not only are you old-fashioned, but you're actually causing harm to people. You're causing people to become depressed. You're causing people to commit suicide. So the pressure on that cultural topic to capitulate to culture is so strong. And I just, I honestly can't even imagine what it's like for kids growing up in this culture, in this time to have to, you know, buck the tide of that cultural idea. But there's, there's that. And I think the other big cultural topic in progressive Christianity and in the deconstruction movement as a whole is this acceptance of what I would call critical social justice. And what I mean by that is, that, uh, of course, the Bible has a lot to say about justice, but our culture has defined that in a very different way than the Bible does. Uh, According to culture, this idea that started in academia and kind of trickled down into uh, mainstream society now is just completely in the wild, is this idea that really all of us are either oppressors or we are oppressed. And Whatever level and intersection of oppression you have, the more authority you have to speak truth when it comes to these topics. And uh, that is just a radically, radically unbiblical way to go about looking at justice. Because, of course, as we know in Christianity, there is no male or female, slave nor free. There's socioeconomic categories, gender categories in there. There's um, ethnic categories in that. And Paul is saying we are one. We are not supposed to look at each other in these uh, different classes of oppression versus, you know, oppressor versus oppressed. And so it causes people to be very suspicious of each other and pitted against each other. But that's how our culture is defining social justice. And um, sadly, a lot of Christians have bought into that. And that has been mainly the gospel of progressive Christianity for a while now.
0: Mm -hmm. I know that's an emotional issue because just having said that, I'm going to get a lot of emails about it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
1: Well, yes, and sorry about that, but it is interesting that that's very common because, you know, I'll go around places and I'll be thinking, man, I'm just saying what the Bible says. I'm not saying anything new. I'm saying the same things Christians have been saying for 2000 years. But because culture has changed so much on mm-hmm. so many of these topics, it is really perceived by a lot of people to be a dangerous or even harmful message. But I think that's why, as Christians, we need to focus on the beauty of the gospel and why it's really a life-saving message. This is a, a message that redeems people, it reconciles them to God, and it's life-giving. And when we do things God's way, it's what's best for us as well.
0: Hmm. Very interesting conversation. Elisa, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Uh, Your book is Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. It's got a nice forward by Lee Strobel. We've had him on the show many times, and we love Lee. And uh, Lisa, thank you so much for taking time to do the show today. Thank you. You bet. All right, we'll take a little break. We'll be right back with lots more. The worst parts of your past are actually what makes the best parts of your future possible. That question will be answered by Chris Brown, my guest. He's written a book called Restored, Transforming the Sting of Your Past Into Purpose for Today. What a great title. Chris, welcome to the show.
2: Yeah, honored to be on the show, Bill. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank all right. So we're just got seated, you and me, next to each other at a dinner party. And I promise I won't eat off your plate unless you're not looking. <laughs> and I say to you, so Chris, tell me what you do. What is it you do? What do you say? Yeah,
2: yeah. well, I've always been uh, just super excited about ministry, and that's manifested itself in lots of different ways. But, uh, you know, currently I am a speaker. I'm a writer. Uh, in the past I've been a radio uh, show host and a podcast host. And uh, most recently, seven months ago, my wife and I launched a church called The Well, just south of Nashville. So we kind of— um, or anything, anything ministry, um, whether that's uh, professionally or occupationally, or just you know in our neighborhood. So yeah. whatever we can do to serve people. Well,
0: that's a great answer. And I'm already looking forward to talking to you more at this dinner party. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So um, let's talk about this uh, specific event in your life that made you want to tell your story to the whole world.
2: Yeah. So you know, I <clears throat> the, the premise of the the book is you know, I I grew up um, in a very unstable childhood uh, filled with violence and poverty and drugs and instability and homelessness and uh, just lots of chaos. And, um, you know, I carried that into adulthood uh, in the form of baggage in many different ways. And uh, through my journey of counseling and pastoral advice and um, even my wife, in a lot of ways, discipling me um, in this area. Um, I've tried to really make sense of it all over the last 15 years or so, and what I've learned, um, I put into a book. Not just you know, not about me, although we I use stories about me as a as kind of a, a, a springboard into some topics. It's really not about my pain. It's really about everyone else's and how to leverage it and how to. Um, and use it for today and for, for the future.
0: Mm-hmm. Chris, talk about your, uh, childhood trauma. I mean, that you don't spin out of that very easy. Nobody does.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, um, you know, grew up, um, well, it's hard to say where I grew up, but I, I started growing up in Colorado and, um, dad, number one, um, uh, decided to leave our our family. um I guess he just really wasn't into the whole parenting thing, and' I'm sorry my uh, yeah well, my mom uh, uh, immediately you know out of survival went to um, man number two and uh, man number two is extremely violent and um, unstable and into uh, alcohol and narcotics and he um, uh, wreaked havoc on our life for several years and then that spun into Him going to jail and us having to flee and going from abuse shelter to abuse shelter, sleeping in the backseat of cars, underneath bridges, underneath piers, uh, just trying whatever we can to survive. Spun into mom, um, really bringing home another guy like, you know, every two or three weeks. um, And really, at the end of the day, um, using her body um, Mm -hmm. in order for us to survive and uh, there's a lot of trauma that comes with that, not only on the fatherhood side, but also on the motherhood side and um, and really on the going to, you know, 17 different schools and trying to navigate going through, you know, all the welfare systems and it's just a lot. Um, so I kind of process all that from the standpoint of not victim's mentality, but victor's mentality. Mm-hmm. And like uh, we're not really looking back to the past from the standpoint of dwelling on it trying to suck the nutrients out of it to serve people now
0: yeah that's lovely chris when you talk about 17 different schools i can't even begin to put my arms around this one because you know in order to thrive as a student and have friends and have uh, sports activities and good grades you kind of need stability check me if i'm wrong about that but Mm. uh come on this couldn't have been going well for for a young chris brown
2: Yeah, you know, every time you settle in and you feel like you got a friend, you know, next thing you know, you're like, you're saying bye. And so to give everyone an example of of baggage that would come from that, and and as everyone's kind of listening in, I I pray that they're not just, you know, thinking about my pain, but maybe what's the parallel in their story? Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, if you're bouncing around, uh, some of the baggage that comes with that is, is not letting anybody get close to you, Uh, stiff arming everyone and just kind of being a shell of a person and not trusting anyone and not having any emotion and just staying guarded. Mm -hmm. So it took me a while to kind of break through that and took a lot of counseling and a lot of conversations. And I feel like I'm on the other end of that now. And now I can empathize with people that have gone through a similar journey in a way where I could never, maybe I could sympathize with them, but I could never empathize unless I've been through it. Mm -hmm. Don't talk, don't
0: trust, don't feel.
2: Yeah. That's yep, the way that's you've of, got,
0: you're you able to stay safe, and you're trying to yeah. do self-preservation. So it makes perfect sense, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, totally. And then now the, the 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 difference now is is I can see that in a room. I can see that. I can sniff it out from a mile away. my who's guarded because of – and because you can't do that unless you've got that sting of the past. And so I, I kind of bottle that up and use that as fuel for me to go over to that person and minister to that person right where they're at.
0: Mm-hmm. Chris Brown is my guest. He's written a book called Restored, Transforming the Sting of Your Past into Purpose for Today. Uh, Chris, maybe you would talk a little bit about ways that God does help people overcome years of pain.
2: Yeah, you know, everyone listening in has got different levels of pain and different kinds of pain. And and uh, one of the biggest issues in our world today is this comparison thing. And so you may hear my story right now. And maybe not relate to it at all because you didn't have that dramatic of pain. But the comparing one person's pain to another is literally nonsense because a a level 10 kind of pain for each person listening in, it doesn't negate the fact no matter how you compare it, it still is a level 10 pain for you. So whatever you've been through, it is a level 10 pain. And so it's how can... How can, we, um, how, how can we go back, process that in a way where in a healthy way? Mm-hmm. You see, there's one thing you can go back in your past and you can actually dwell on it, and it's actually crippling. There's another way you can go back in your past, and you can you – can, so I'm always a firm believer that you peek at the past, but you focus on the future. And there's a reason why when you're driving a car that the rearview mirror is only five or six inches long. But your windshield is absolutely huge, mm-hmm. and the reason why is because you're supposed to be looking out the windshield the majority of the time. But you do have to peek yeah. at what's behind you uh, for you to have a reference point on how you can go forward. And so that would be, you know, kind of my my, you know, the, the overall premise of the book, and also my encouragement to those listening in is: don't try to squash down your past, don't try to like hide it, don't try to run from it. We can either run from our pain. Some people run toward your pain. I wouldn't even say that. I wouldn't say run toward your pain. I would say dance with it. You know it's there, and you can leverage it, and you can kind of move it. You're leading the dance. Mm-hmm. It's not leading you. You're leading it. And you're saying, okay, let's go over here, and let's minister with it. Mm, let's go over like here. That. Let's learn from it. And you're actually just leading that pain and leveraging it for God's kingdom. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a principle in, in the Bible that talks about stewardship, and a lot of times it's talked about from the standpoint of money. And uh, it's uh, M- Matthew 25, 14 through 30 talks about the parable, of the talents or the parable, of the bags of gold. But if we just take it out of the money bucket and say, we are managing this life, our past, um, our time, our energy, our influence, we're managing all this for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. One of those things that we're managing is the experiences and the past that he has allowed us to go through the valleys and the mountaintops. The question is, how well are we managing it for his kingdom? Because if we're not managing it for his kingdom and giving it purpose, then it truly is a waste. It's mm-hmm. a waste of emotion. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of relationships. It's a waste of grief, whatever the emotion may be. It's a waste unless we give it purpose.
0: These are all above average answers, Chris, just so you know.
2: Well, oh, thank you. I
0: see yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we're sitting at, at this dinner party, I'm having a blast, just so you know. Now, oh, good. now you got three kids, and I, you can talk about them if you like. You don't have to, but I'm curious as to how uh, your childhood affected how you've raised your own
2: kids. Yeah, so I have a uh, three teenagers, 17, 16, and 13. So everybody could be praying for me a little <laughs> bit <laughs> in a season that uh, it creates some some unique challenges. Sure. But for me, from a parenting standpoint, I, I kind of I run parenting or fatherhood through three major filters. Uh, one is biblical and non-biblical. Okay. What does the Bible tell me to do when it comes to this? Um, number two is, okay, what did I get? What did I receive when I was growing up? And I'm going to do the exact opposite. Right. <laughs> and then number three is probably the most helpful, uh, to, from a practical standpoint is, okay, if I'm in these in, in these exact shoes right now, what would I want? Uh, the other day, uh, um, The other day, my my child was going to another school. And of course, you know, based on our conversation already, I could really relate to that. And he was going to another school. He's going from private school to public school. That already was a challenge. And he's going from one socioeconomic situation to another one where he doesn't feel nearly as comfortable. And I knew that was going to be a tough day for him. Well, typically I'm out of the house before he gets up. I've already gone to the gym and done my thing, but I, I, um, Told my gym partner, I said, hey, I can't come in today, and was downstairs just kind of hovering around the bathroom while he was getting ready mm-hmm. and eating his cereal. And I just wanted to be around him. Mm-hmm. So he just felt like he wasn't alone and prayed with him before he got in the car. To to, to And what, my filter, what would I have wanted when I was a kid, what, when I was thirsting for? What was I dying for? I wanted so bad to have. I just wanted to be that. But uh, from fatherhood standpoint, there is some baggage as well. I I brought some baggage into fatherhood as well. Um, So some conflict resolution stuff, some scarcity mindset stuff, um, uh, those kind of things. And so even the the volume in the house, for me, I don't want – I want my house to be super, super quiet and calm, even though they're yelling at each other back and forth just playing. I can't take the volume; it triggers me. Right, and so I, I, I actually uh, request that our house stays really, really calm and quiet—probably more than normal, mm-hmm. more than most homes. But there, there's some baggage tied to it, and they understand that and they respect it, and everyone tries to stay nice and calm in the home.
0: Mm-hmm. I love the fact that you were hovering around the bathroom, just kind of being there for your son, letting him know that Dad's there if you want to. Talk or he's just there. Period, which is great. So maybe you can talk about friendships and why why are friendships so important when you're you're going through and just trying to overcome some difficult challenge or even some maybe some past trauma.
2: Yeah. So that idea of hovering it, it, that uh, is a good segue because I I know okay what would I have wanted. I really, as a kid, I would not want my kid, my dad to be standing around talking to me. I'm not in the mood to talk. It's first thing in the morning. I just really want you around. And, um, you know, when it comes to friendships, um, a lot of times we don't really need someone to come in and fix our problem. We don't need someone to come in. Let's say we did something wrong. We don't need someone to shove truth down our throat. Um, we just need somebody to show up. And that's one of the chapters in my book called Be a Danny there was a a kid in my childhood named Danny when I was in a neighborhood that nobody looked like me and I was a target for Mm -hmm. bullying. He was always there for me. And I've always remembered that and always been thankful for that. And so as an adult, I take that past pain. And what I learned in those moments of pain, there was some, there was a spark of great things in that pain. And that was Danny. And I want to be a Danny to people in my life. A lot of times friendship right now in this world is all about showing up for people and being stadium friends with a phone finger and cheering them on in their biggest moments. Mm -hmm. But what we need more of is we need courtroom friends that show up. Even when you did something wrong, you messed up. You don't need truth shoved down your throat immediately. You probably already know you messed up. You probably already know that things need fixed. What you do need is you need someone to just show up and hold space with you and listen to you and be able to feel the pain with you. A few years ago, I was in Nashville and a friend of mine, uh, had to go to rehab and um, he went out to Phoenix to rehab and uh, I was calling him every once in a while. And after about a month, I asked him, I said, Hey, who's come out and visited you? Anybody? And he was a pastor of 40,000 people and um, he actually didn't even really need to go to rehab, but he just did it to humble himself and really just earn some more trust with uh, the people that are closest to him. And so he just went through the process. And so I really valued and respected him for that. And uh, one day when I found out that he, nobody had visited him, and I, I put this in the book as well, and I, I, I flew out to Phoenix. He mm-hmm. had a one-hour window for guests, and I showed up, and I was 20 minutes late, uh, just the, the flight time and everything. That's the quickest I can get there. I flew into Phoenix but then drove to Tucson, which is another, I think, two hours. Mm-hmm. Got there, spent 40 minutes just showing up and listening. I didn't cram truth down his throat. It wasn't the right time. He knew he had messed up. He knew he made a mistake. And uh, just showed up for him and just listened, hugged his neck, told him I believed in him. The best days are ahead. Got back on the plane. Well, drove back to Phoenix, then flew to Nashville and came back home. Um, That's just about it's about showing up. And Mm -hmm. so that's an example of past pain transforming into purpose for today. Well, great,
0: great. Chris Brown is my guest. He's written a book called Restored, Transforming the Sting of Your Past into Purpose for Today. After a short break, we'll be right back with Chris. my guest. He's written a book called Restored, Transforming the Sting of Your Past into Purpose for Today. During the break, Chris, I was thinking about uh, your dear mother and some of the choices she made. And I'm sure as a teenager, you had your own amount of uh, feelings of angst about that situation. There might've been some shame with what was going on. Um, Did you have some resentment towards her during those, those years?
2: Yeah. So, and, and, you know, a lot of my conversations about the book and, and then in the book, there's a lot of focus on fatherhood. Uh, That's a big part of my story. But as I went to, I made sure that I went through quite a bit of counseling uh, before I went into this book, because I really wanted to steward the reader's time. Uh, well, and I wanted to make sure I added a lot of value uh, to the reader, not just telling my story, because my story is literally, again, just a springboard for some application and tips and advice for not only me, but also for the reader. And as I got into uh, counseling, I realized that actually most of my trauma is actually from my mom, not my dad's and all the boyfriend's. Hmm. Um, th- just to break that down a little bit for us. Um, I was, um, from the time I was probably six all the way till I was like 22, I was the main man, the man of the house. I was the one who would help pay the bills. I was the one that helped prepare dinner, do the laundry, take out the trash, take care of my little brother and everything in between. And, uh, every time my mom would bring home another man that she would known for an hour or maybe known for like three days and met at a bar, um, it would be, hey, Chris, go play with your toys. Hey, go to your room. And then it would just discard me. And uh, not being mean, she's, she was my hero. She was a hardworking single mom trying to make ends meet, working three jobs. She was just doing whatever she could to survive. But as a result, I don't think she ever realized that she cast me aside like that. I was kind of her go-to, the one that she leaned on, and I took a lot of pride in that. And then to be cast aside like a little child. Um, even though she probably from her side was probably thinking, hey, I want to give him a break. I want him to go be a kid. For me, it was really, really traumatic that I was cast aside like that. And so there's a lot of uh, resentment there. But I, you, in life, we have a choice. We have a choice on how we see things. Let's play this out. Right now, my mom is no longer with us. Mm-hmm. And I have a choice on how I remember her. I have a choice on what story I'm going to tell about her. I can either say that my mom was so bad and so this and she was strung out and she was um, suicidal. And she was, um, I can even say like quasi prostitute, right? I can go that route. Or I can say she was a hardworking single mom that was doing everything she could to help her child survive. The bottom line is, is all those dads, they all left. Who's the one that stayed? My mom stayed. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I have a choice. We have a choice. Everyone listening in, we have a choice on how we see things. We can either have a victim's mentality or a victor's mentality, and I just choose to see the positive. And so I pull the nutrients out of what I learned from my mom, and uh, I hold on to that, and I give her a ton of grace for the things that didn't work out and the things that weren't good. I want to extend the grace that I'd want people to extend the grace to me. Mm-hmm.
0: Chris, when you talk about uh, some homelessness and bouncing around from shelter to shelter, and you were in charge at a young age of making the meals, doing the laundry, paying the bills, what is your relationship like today with money?
2: Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, you would think that's uh, part of my current money philosophy would be scarcity mindset. Mm -hmm. And you'd be kind of a little bit, you'd be kind of right. I am extremely frugal. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, so I I do save probably, you know, I try to try not to be a hoarder because the Bible is pretty clear about that too. Um, But I do save probably more than the average person. Uh, I do value money from the standpoint of gratitude uh, more than the average person. And, you know, when you're really grateful, just kind of a little a uh, uh, gratitude ta- uh, tangent here, uh, when you truly are a grateful person, the currency of gratitude is generosity. Generosity is actually gratitude in action. And when you're grateful for what you've got, it automatically makes you want to give. And so the fact that I live a life right now where I actually do have money, um, and I've lived a life where I didn't have money, where we would actually get more food stamps than we were actually supposed to get, just because I think the federal government right now doesn't have that dialed in yet. We would get way too much food stamps. So what do we do? We'd go outside. Now, when I say we, my mom would tell me to go outside the grocery store. I'd stand outside the grocery store, and I would sell food stamps for pennies on the dollar so that we could have cash so that she could buy, buy, buy narcotics That was the way that we generated cash was Mm -hmm. by selling food stamps. Well, here I am today as an adult and I actually have money and I'm grateful for what I've got. And so uh, for me, the way that it shapes me as an adult, number one is I'm very frugal. I'm not very, I'm not wasteful and I'm a little bit more generous than I think I would be if I didn't have that past pain. So again, transforming that past pain into purpose for today by being a more generous person.
0: Mm. Nice. So... Let's talk about um, how meeting your wife, uh, how that changed your life, because you watched your mom have a lot of broken relationships. And a lot of the times kids watch and they see what their parents do and they have that in their back of their head. How did you uh, how did life change
2: for you when you met your wife? Yeah, so I went to, a, you know, there's a chapter in the book called His Fingerprints. And you look back and you can just totally see God at work. And I was, I never wanted to go home in middle school and high school. And so I wanted, so I wanted to drown myself in sports so I didn't have to go home. And so I would be the first one to practice and the last one to leave. And that's fall, winter, spring, football, baseball, basketball. And I'd outwork everybody because I was starving for a that a boy. I was starving for a, I'm proud of you, Chris from these men in my life, these coaches and supervisors and things. Well, I did that long enough where a below-average athlete can actually become pretty good at sports, and I got a baseball scholarship to a Christian college. I didn't know what being a Christian meant, but for $50,000, I'll be a Christian all day long. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I just pretty much just said I'll be a Christian. Well, two weeks into this Christian college, I um, I met the Lord, and um, I, I was exposed to Psalm 68 that says, I am the father to the fatherless. And I met my father that day, and then I met my wife there that, um, in that uh, at that college, and um, she was clearly um, a Brady Bunch and so marrying into the Brady Bunch was weird for this guy from the other side of the, the railroad tracks and so um, that 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 I can see his fingerprints through all of that you think about where this conversation started and all of that lifestyle that I lived the fact that now I'm married to a godly proverbs 31 woman for 22 years and I've got three kids that are are healthy and that accepted Christ and they they uh, Christian leaders in their sphere of influence. Um, That is only God, His fingerprints. But it does take pulling out the nutrients and going back and looking through your past to see His fingerprints and to actually give Him credit for everything He's done in our lives.
0: Mm -hmm. Chris Brown is my guest. His book is Restored, Transforming the Sting of Your Past into Purpose. For today, I know, Chris, you've probably got one or two pieces of advice as we start to wrap up that you'd be able to give someone who's going through a a hard time in their life right now. And I hear about them every day. We get messages uh, to our text line and our emails of people asking for prayer because their life is turned upside down. And some people are saying, I might be at the very end of my rope and I'm mm. I'm nervous.
2: Yeah, well, there's a great passage of scripture in Proverbs 11:25. It says, the generous will prosper. And then it goes on to say, those who refresh others themselves are refreshed. This world tells us that when we're discouraged and we're down and maybe even depressed, that we're supposed to go after self-care. We're supposed to go on a vacation. We're supposed to get a massage. We're supposed to get a facial, get our nails done. Mm-hmm. The Bible says the opposite. If we were to focus on others and adding value to other people's lives, we will be refreshed in the process. And so that would be my, uh, my encouragement for all of us is to do some small acts of service for people in our sphere of influence and watch what it does to our soul.
0: Just about a minute left. Do you have a a little bit more peace of mind after you told your story and got everything out on the table?
2: Uh, Actually, no. I feel so vulnerable and exposed. (laughs) I feel like I was way too transparent. Yeah. I'm just trusting God that he'll do something big with it.
0: Yeah. Well, it's uh, been great having you on the show, Chris. Thank you so much. Uh, Chris Brown has been my guest. His book is called Restored, Transforming the Sting of Your Past into Purpose for Today. That's all the time we have. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow.